Paul Manafort's trial in Alexandria, Virginia continues. The government's star witness, Rick Gates. Gates is Manafort's former business associate. He said that he used money he stole from Manafort to lead a secret life in London, carrying on an affair in an apartment. This case is going to be very important to establish credibility for Bob Mueller. And now I am told that President Trump is watching this, uh, these proceedings very carefully. Manafort has nothing to do with our campaign. President Trump has tried to make it clear that the ongoing trial of his former campaign manager has nothing to do with him. Or with Russia. Or with possible coordination between his campaign and Russia. He worked for me, what, for 49 days or something? A very short period of time. And while the specific charges in this case against Paul Manafort are not directly related to coordination, this trial is the first to come from Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller's investigation, an investigation, let's remember, into interference in the 2016 election and any possible links between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign, an investigation that has expanded to include possible obstruction of justice by the president himself. How much distance, then, can Trump effectively place between him and the ongoing trial? How do the financial crimes charged against Manafort fit into the larger Mueller investigation? And how may the trial's revelations and ultimate conclusion directly affect the president of the United States? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm your host, Allison Michaels. Now, to understand why Manafort's trial matters to Trump, contrary to Trump's messaging, it's helpful to understand how Trump came to work with Paul Manafort. Well, he became the campaign chairman in late spring, early summer of 2016 at a key point. His job was really, he was brought on and elevated within the campaign to oversee the, the convention process. Devlin Barrett is a national security reporter at The Washington Post who's been covering Paul Manafort and his trial very closely. He is describing the vibes on the Trump campaign in 2016, around the time of Manafort's promotion to campaign chairman. There was a lot of question about how the delegates would respond to Trump. Would there be some sort of turmoil or, or uncertainty around Trump's nomination process at the convention? And uh, Manafort was elevated. He'd already been working for the campaign, but he was elevated uh, within the campaign at that time because he was such a veteran political hand that he had been through a lot of conventions and he could guide the, the Trump campaign through that process, and he, and he did. Paul Manafort's experience as a political hand dates back to the campaigns of Ronald Reagan and Bob Dole. He was a well-known player in Republican circles in Washington. In the 1980s, Manafort founded a lobbying firm that was the first to house political consultants. On some occasions in his career, he lobbied on behalf of foreign leaders. Given Manafort's stature among GOP veterans, the Trump team turned to Manafort to bring order to a tumultuous moment in the Trump campaign. At the time, it made sense in terms of concerns within and outside the party about disorganization and confusion within the campaign. And Manafort was generally viewed as a guy who could bring a fair degree of order and, and routine to the process. And so Manafort accepted his promotion to campaign chairman with one strange caveat. I mean, one of the very odd bits of Manafort's promotion to chairman was that he took that job with no salary. He was unpaid while running a presidential campaign. That's not something you see every day. What makes that even more strange um, is that 
at the time he took that unpaid position, um, we heard testimony that uh, his company was losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. So he was bleeding money and yet still not taking money for this very important job that he had. Okay, so the campaign is going along. Paul Manafort is the campaign chairman. And then a few months into it, we get to this point where Paul Manafort ends up having to resign. What, what were the circumstances of that? Well, the circumstances were there were a bunch of stories that came out uh, detailing Manafort's past work for Ukraine and specifically for uh, the former president of Ukraine, who was uh, closely allied with Russia and who, when when protests started um, threatening his hold on the government, he fled to Russia uh, and he's there now. Um, so the, the question in the questions that were raised in August, if you think back to that time in 2016. Uh, the Trump campaign was facing a lot of questions about what exactly were the relationships, if any, between the Trump administration and the Russian government. And to have their campaign chairman suddenly be publicly associated and, and very clearly um, – it's very clear that Manafort worked for the Ukraine president for that time period. Um, that became something that was viewed as politically untenable within the Trump campaign. So Manafort had to go. In the lead up to Manafort's departure from the campaign, one of the ways that we came to know about his work in Ukraine was the discovery of these handwritten ledgers. Now, those ledgers detailed millions of dollars in payments between Paul Manafort and the former Ukrainian president. What questions did those ledgers raise? The ledger that you, that you refer to that was found... Um, was part of a, you know, Ukraine has its own politics and a big part of the politics of the Ukraine for the last few years has been trying to determine, you know, where all the money went. Um, and as part of that process, this ledger came up and this ledger mentioned Manafort. And that's that seemed to suggest large dollar amounts going to Manafort. So all the money and where it went has led us to these charges that we see today. Can you describe the moment that you found out in your reporting that Manafort was going to be charged with these financial crimes? Well, so if you think back to what was going on in the summer of last year, the summer of 2017, uh, Manafort's home was searched uh, around 6 a.m. And frankly, when you do that, it usually means uh, the FBI and the Justice Department are very seriously considering charging you with something. So things puttered along a little bit for a month or two from there. And then, and then he was charged, you know, within, I think, about a month or two of that, of that point. Uh, and I don't think that was a surprise. I think what has been surprising about the Manafort case so far has been the number of charges, the sort of duration and scale of the alleged crimes in terms of uh, supposedly lying on his taxes and allegedly defrauding banks. Um, and also that a lot of his crimes uh, in the tail end, the stuff he was he's accused of doing uh, in 2016 really stemmed from what prosecutors say was the fact that his money had dried up and he needed to start lying to banks to, to get more and to stay afloat, essentially. Manafort is charged in a 32-count indictment which covers tax evasion and bank fraud charges. That's lawyer Robert Mintz. He's a former federal prosecutor and an expert on white-collar crime. He's explaining exactly what Manafort is charged with in his ongoing trial in Virginia. The trial centers around disguising $30 million in overseas income. 
Essentially, he's accused of making tens of millions of dollars while working for a pro-Russian Ukrainian president, then concealing those earnings in offshore bank accounts and, and hiding those earnings from U.S. authorities. He's also charged with misleading lenders about his finances to induce them to make $20 million in loans. Okay, and these charges are all financial crimes. Is it common for financial crimes to stem from investigations into other things? Like we're seeing here, Mueller is, was not investigating necessarily the financial crimes of Paul Manafort, but the charges emerged from the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Having spent 10 years as a federal prosecutor, I can say that it's quite common for investigations to take twists and turns in ways that were unforeseen by prosecutors at the beginning of an investigation. So it's not unusual that prosecutors might begin to investigate certain individuals for certain potential crimes and ultimately wind up prosecuting different individuals for crimes that they did not even foresee at the beginning of the investigation. And why might they do that? Prosecutors work on a very simple basis. They follow the evidence. So they'll look at bank accounts. They'll follow money. They'll follow emails. They use all that evidence and they, and they, they use all that information and then they follow that evidence to wherever it leads. Ultimately, in this case, it led to money that was being generated offshore and according to prosecutors, not reported to the IRS. And it led them to Mr. Manafort as the person who was allegedly earning all this money and failing to report it on his income taxes. So then with these particular financial crimes, crimes that were discovered while investigating something else, typically be prosecuted? Or would prosecutors turn the other way with these kinds of crimes? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, These are the types of financial frauds that the U.S. attorney's offices around the country and the Department of Justice will typically go after. And most of the cases that are prosecuted by U.S. attorney's offices around the country involve sophisticated financial frauds, just like the case here that's being tried before this jury in Virginia. Are charges like this often used as leverage for larger cases, or are they often just isolated to the prosecution in and of itself? Well, it could be both. This is clearly a significant crime that is being charged here because it involves $30 million in income that the government alleges was not declared by Mr. Manafort on his income taxes. But at the same time, prosecutors will use whatever leverage they have, whether it's a financial fraud case like this or something as simple as a drug charge in order to apply leverage to a witness who they think might have vital evidence that can lead them to other cases. So in this case, we've seen charges used as leverage for a plea deal in the case of Rick Gates, who was the right-hand man of Paul Manafort and eventually became deputy campaign chair to the Trump campaign. We've seen Gates strike a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Manafort. Why would Rick Gates' lawyers have him strike a plea deal? It was clear for months that federal prosecutors had their sights set on Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. There was a search warrant that was conducted at Mr. Manafort's house. There were subpoenas that were issued. And so it was no surprise that ultimately Rick Gates and Paul Manafort got indicted. At that point, it was really a race to the courthouse door to determine which one of the two was going to cooperate first. The first one in is the one who's most valuable to the prosecution and the one who is going to get the best possible deal. In this case, Rick Gates was the perfect cooperator for the government because he was, in the eyes of the government, less culpable than Paul Manafort, but at the same time, he was so incredibly 
involved in all of the financial dealings that Paul Manafort had been involved with that formed the basis for these criminal charges, that he was really the one who held the keys to the castle and could explain to prosecutors exactly what Paul Manafort did in order to try to shield all this money from the IRS. Right. So then why wouldn't Paul Manafort himself also strike a plea deal, given all of this evidence? Well, Paul Manafort may still strike a plea deal. He's really playing with house money at this point because he can go through this trial and see if he can possibly raise a reasonable doubt in the mind of just one juror to get a hung jury here or perhaps even an acquittal if he's even more successful. At the end of that process, even after he's convicted, if that happens, prosecutors will be more than happy to still cut a deal with him in order to gain his cooperation. And when we imagine his cooperation, what is it that prosecutors might think Paul Manafort knows? Well, at this point, they don't know exactly what Paul Manafort knows, but they do know that Paul Manafort was intimately involved in the politics of the Ukraine, that he had substantial connections to people over in Russia, and that he was the chairman of the campaign for President Trump for some period of time. And so when you put all those pieces together, he's clearly someone who'd be of great interest to the government and someone who prosecutors will want to talk with if he decides to strike a deal. Now, the connections between Manafort and Ukraine are part of the ongoing trial in Virginia in the form specifically of charges for financial crimes. But Manafort faces more charges that revolve around his relationship with the former Ukrainian president. Those charges, as our reporter Devlin explains, will be brought against Manafort in a trial scheduled to begin next month. In that trial, he's going to be facing charges of failing to register as an agent of a foreign government, specifically Ukraine, because what prosecutors say is he essentially secretly engineered a lobbying effort uh, on Ukraine's behalf in the United States. But under the law, you're supposed to report if you are engaged in that kind of work. And two, uh, they accuse him of trying to tamper with a witness once those charges became known, specifically that he and uh, a Russian, a longtime Russian employee of his, uh, tried to give a cover story to some of the potential witnesses in the case. So now why would Mueller throw all of these charges at Manafort? What might be his motivation? You know, it is a standard white-collar prosecutor practice to try and work what they call work up the ladder, meaning you, if you find wrongdoing by someone in an organization, even if they may be low in the totem pole, um, you charge them and then try to pressure them to cooperate. What's been sort of interesting about Manafort is he's shown zero interest in cooperating, and he's also not that low on the totem pole, right? He was the campaign chairman. That is not a, that is not a low-level job. But uh, I think prosecutors definitely have an interest someday, hopefully in their minds, of Manafort talking to them about what he knows. I mean, he, Manafort has denied – publicly, Manafort has denied that, you know, that, that he has anything to do with, the, with Kremlin interference with, with the election, that, you know, he's, he doesn't – certainly doesn't deny his work in the Ukraine, but he says he didn't do anything wrong. He just, you know, worked for the government of the – worked for the leader of Ukraine at that time. Will he ever – decide to talk to prosecutors about that? I mean, that's a big question in this entire process. So far, he has shown zero interest. And he's, and prosecutors have come to suspect that he thinks he might get a pardon at the end of this. And that was my next question for you. Can Trump pardon Paul Manafort? 
Uh, he certainly can. The the presidential pardon uh, in the in the Constitution is pretty blunt and direct and and far reaching. So that's certainly possible. It's possible that that's what Manafort thinks will happen. We don't really know, but yes, it is absolutely possible. And if the president were to pardon somebody formerly on his campaign who was being investigated for crimes related to an investigation that included he himself, the president, possibly obstructing justice, it doesn't look good <laughs> for the president. Well, certainly not. Um, obviously, there would be a lot of political backlash to such an act. But I also think the president has shown a willingness to engender b- political backlashes. What the White House tends to say when asked about that possibility is, you know, no one's thinking about that. No one's talked about that. It's just not something we're considering. But what the president has done in this first year and a half in office is issue a number of pardons for people who are politically active Republicans or politically active conservatives who were convicted of, of crimes. And I think some folks see a pattern in those pardons that could ultimately be meaningful to anyone charged in the Mueller case. Trump does seem to have a tendency to weather political storms. But let's consider for a second the timing of these trials. In a few months, Americans will be voting for their members of Congress in our midterm elections. Do you imagine that these trials will contribute to voters' decisions at the polls? What Trump has told people privately is that he thinks this investigation is actually a little good for him politically and that it gets uh, some members of his base riled up and angry and he thinks he, he can, you know, sort of make a, make a good argument to his base that they need to turn out in November because Mueller is going after him. Um, there is some polling that suggests that might not be completely off, that there might be something to that. Um, I, I mean, there's also just a, a basic question of, you know, I, I don't know. I don't assume that a lot of voters are going to vote either for or against the Russia investigation. Um, you know, it's a very politically polarized country uh, with or without the Russia investigation. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's a, an open question as to what effect, if any, the Russia investigation has on, on, on the election. Um, you know, what you've seen so far is that the president has really tried to both distance himself from Manafort by saying, oh, he only worked for me for a short time. I don't really know the guy. At the same time, defending him in the sense of saying that he thinks Manafort has been treated very unfairly. And, uh, you know, the Mueller investigation should be shut down right away. So he's arguing two different things, but two things that, you know, go together in his mind. And perhaps the fact that the president is publicly weighing in at all is part of what makes this trial so unlike anything our country has seen before. It's certainly, I mean, one of the strangest things I've ever seen as a reporter who's been covering this kind of stuff for two decades is there was an FBI witness on the stand the morning that president decided to tweet a bunch of stuff about how this investigation should be shut down right away. That's a new one on me. I, I have not seen anything like that before. When do you expect this trial to end? What do you expect to see come out of it? What are the possible outcomes? Prosecutors say that they expect to be done with their case uh, by the end of this week. It's unclear how many, if any, witnesses the defense will put on. You know, the defense doesn't have to put on any witnesses if they don't want to. So I would expect this case to go to the jury probably next week. And beyond that, how long a jury deliberates or how they come down on it, I think is always, (laughs) I I think it's always stupid to try and predict that. And what the jury decides has an impact beyond this one trial. 
the jury's verdict in the Manafort trial could have significant consequences. Consequences for the remainder of the Mueller investigation and consequences for the politics that surround the president. Obviously, a conviction would be, you know, a relief and and sort of a, a boon to the Mueller folks. And, and an acquittal would obviously, you know, give give the Trump folks and, and Trump himself, I think, a, a lot to cheer about. I think it would affect the perception of the Mueller investigation, definitely, because this is his this is the first trial to emerge out of the Mueller investigations. Um, and if you were to lose the first one and one that, frankly, I think most legal experts would say, like, there is a pretty high stack of evidence in this case. Paper evidence, yes. Uh, some problematic witnesses, maybe. Sure. Um, but still a very high stack of evidence. I think that would hurt Mueller's public credibility. Again, does that change voters' minds? I, I don't know. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Can He Do That? If you enjoyed it, tell a friend, share it wherever you share things, on social media, in an email to your family. Just let somebody know that you liked it. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the amazing Carol Alderman, with design help this week from Ross May. Our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio, and our theme music is composed by Ted Muldoon. <laughs> 